In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. We march today for jobs and freedom. But we have nothing to be proud of. But hundreds and thousands of our brothers are not here. But they're receiving starvation wages or no wages at all. While we stand here, there are sharecroppers in the Delta of Mississippi who are in the field working for less than $3 a day 12 hours a day. While we stand here, there are students in jail on trumped-up charges. Our brother James Farmer, along with many others, is also in jail. We come here today with a great sense of misgiving. It is true that we support the administration's civil rights bill. We support it with great reservation, however. Unless, unless Tile 3 is put in this bill, there's nothing to protect the young children and old women who must face police dogs and fire hoses in the South while they engage in peaceful demonstrations. Hello. Yes, this is a different voice than you're used to hearing. My name is Tia Mitchell. I'm the AJC's Washington correspondent, and I'm guest hosting today's episode of the Politically Georgia podcast. My guest today is Ernie Suggs, a race and culture reporter for the AJC, and he's also been reporting on John Lewis for, I think, more than 20 years. Is that about right, Ernie? Uh, 23 years, to be exact. <laughs> all right. So, of course, as you guys can guess, we are talking all about John Lewis today. But, um, of course, you've heard John Lewis passed away on Friday, July 17th at the age of 80 after a battle with advanced stage pancreatic cancer. He passed away Friday night. Earlier that morning, another civil rights leader, C.T. Vivian, also passed away. And we know that as, at the time of this recording, we don't know about when John Lewis's funeral will happen, but C.T. Vivian's funeral is scheduled for Thursday, July 23rd. You know, there's going to be a lot of limitations for, for both memorial services because of the pandemic. So, Ernie, what I want you to do starting out is let's put this in context. Tell us more about how both C.T. Vivian and John Lewis fit into the frame of the civil rights movement. Well, C.T. Vivian and John Lewis, they've known each other for six, little, literally for 60 years. And as you can imagine, they have both been on the, on the cusp and at the forefront of the start of the civil rights movement. C.T. Vivian, for example, started as way back as 1947, 
doing sit-ins in Peoria, Illinois. So he's a very, he was a very, very deep veteran of this whole thing. He and John Lewis got together around 1960 when John Lewis enrolled at the American uh, Baptist Theological Seminary in Tennessee, where, uh, where C.T. Vivian was in Nashville as well working. The two got together um, as part of the Nashville student movement, which was a major, major movement uh, of students who kind of led the early activist portion of the civil rights movement. They did sit-ins, they did the freedom rides. Uh, as a matter of fact, on May 24th, 1961, John Lewis and C.T. Vivian were arrested. Um, they were part of a large group of, of young men and women who were arrested and sent to the notorious Parchman prison. And where they spent, you know, I think John Lewis spent 37 days in prison. I'm not sure how long C.C. Vivian was there. But these two gentlemen have been kind of kindred, kindred spirits for more than 60 years. And they both have this kind of, they both have this great, generous nature about themselves. Uh, you know, they both, you know, their families grew up together. Uh, their children grew up together. Their wives were great friends. Uh, so they were just really, really close. And for them to pass away on the same day, um, 60 years after they met, you know, uh, 59 years after they were arrested together in Parchment with those famous mugshots of both of them smiling is just tremendous. And, you know, if you think about all the major violent, and I, and I speak this word cautiously, all the major violent events that took place in the 1960s, whether it's uh, Selma, uh, the march, you know, whether Selma in 1965, uh, whether it's the Freedom Rides in 1961, C.T. Vivian and John Lewis were there. They were on the front lines of all this stuff. They were bloodied. You know, their blood is in the soil of Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia because they took the blows for all of us to be here today. So they were very, very crucial in the fabric of the civil rights movement. Yeah, and we're going to get to some of that, you know, as we chat. Um, I do think that it's people don't know as much, especially outside of Atlanta, might not have heard of C.T. Vivian um, because John Lewis's prominence actually increased, not just because of the civil rights movement, but as he got a career in politics as well. And that's how you um, got to know him on a more personal level, right? Mm -hmm. Well, when I moved to Atlanta to cover, uh, when I moved to Atlanta to work for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, my initial beat and my beat still is covering race and culture. So obviously with Atlanta being the, you know, the birthplace of the civil rights movement, people like C.T. Vivian, Coretta Scott King, Joe Lowry, Hosea Williams were on my beat. And John Lewis was on my beat as well, although he was a member of the United States House of Representatives. I didn't get a chance to see him and talk to him that much early on. But once I established myself as a race, culture, and civil rights reporter, John Lewis became one of my, you know, go-to sources. I mean, he was always available. He was always kind. He was always knowledgeable, obviously. And he was there. So he knew all the things that were going on. He knew all the questions that I was going to ask. He had the answers to all those questions. So covering CT and John Lewis, um, they were just part of my everyday existence as a newspaper reporter. And, you know, John, with John Lewis being in, in a member of the House of Representatives, he presented a kind of a different kind of he was a different kind of figure for me because he was a politician as well as a civil rights figure. So he kind of had that double role. You know, I would cover him about legislation. 
I would talk to him about, you know, how things are going in Washington, about Donald Trump and Barack Obama. But I can also talk to him about Martin Luther King Jr. and voting rights and, and, and civil rights and things of that nature, growing up in Alabama. So he was he was a wide spectrum of coverage for me. And C.T. Vivian, the same way. I mean, he he was this kind, gentle. I, I called him an intellectual and I think a lot of people did call him an intellectual because he was just so brilliant on so many levels and, and could speak on so many different topics. Wow. So, again, we know that John Lewis, because he also had that political career, became, you know, world famous, world renowned, not just as a civil rights leader, but also just as like, I think he just kind of represents an era in the fact that he's the last of what we know as the big six that led those major civil rights organizations that organized the March on Washington in 1963. So it's like the whole world, you know, seemed to react and grieve once news of his passing, you know, started being reported Friday night. And we saw in Atlanta, people went to the mural in Sweet Auburn. And I even saw, you know, there was like a little street party on Sunday night where folks were doing the electric slide and having, you know, kind of celebrating his life. Why do you think he means so much to people, um, just people in general? I think very simple. He he was a good man. He was a good person. And I, I don't think that there was anybody. I mean, you have people on the, on the right, you know, on the far right. And you've seen it. I'm sure you've seen it as a cover, coverage. Talk about some of the things he is as a politician. But in general, you don't hear a lot of bad things about John Lewis, and that's because he is a kind man. If you look on social media after he passed away, there are dozens upon dozens, hundreds, probably thousands of photographs that people have posted of him, of John Lewis and them at random places, at the drugstore, at Whole Foods, at the airport, of, of John Lewis taking photographs of people just because they want to take a photograph of John Lewis. I talked to his brother, Henry, the other day, and he said, you know, a 10 minute drive to him, a 10 minute stop at the grocery store to get a loaf of bread ended up being three and three and a half hours because he would talk to everyone, shake everyone's hands and take every photograph of, with anyone who wanted to take a photograph. So and I also think that John Lewis is one of those distinct individuals in American history who has two who had two lives. I mean, if you look at his life from 1940 until 1985, he was clear if he, if his life if he had stopped there he would clearly be amongst the mount rushmore civil rights leaders you can you can argue that but if you look at his life from 1986 until 2020 he is a an amazing politician he's an amazing legislator so he had these two lives that he did very well in that he that he made an impact in both of those so i think when you ask the question about how is he able to have such an influence on people at, at his death to have such a celebration of his life? I think it's part of that. I think it's the kindness that he had, as well as the fact that he's able to lead two distinct careers. And people don't get a lot of times people don't get the chance to have one. He had two. Right. And, you know, you mentioned talking to his family. You and I teamed up. I'm so glad we did it. You know, we tracked down his brothers and sisters. We spoke to them. You went to Troy, Alabama and got to see that farm that, you know, 
We've heard the legends of him preaching to the chickens and living on a farm in rural Alabama, but you actually got to see it. So tell us what you learned and and, and how that helped you kind of have better insight into who John Lewis was. Well, being on the farm, I was on the farm last Tuesday. I spent the whole day down there with his, his sisters and brothers. And being on the farm kind of shows you where he where he gets it from, where he where he got it, where he got who who he how he became John Lewis. And, you know, and you even think about the farm. If you put the farm in perspective, his father purchased that farm in 1944 for three hundred dollars. It's one hundred and ten acres. Now, African-Americans can't buy one hundred and ten acres now. Not to say that we can't afford it, but it's just that, you know, we don't think about these kind of things. But his father in 1944 was thinking about buying 110 acres in rural Alabama, a black man owning land, a black man having a farm with cows and pigs and and, and cotton and peanuts and corn. And they and the family raised their own food and they and their mother, their dear mother made their clothes. So this is a guy who comes from humble beginnings. But he comes from a family and a mother and father who had 10 children. John was a third of 10 who had 10 children who taught them how to respect people, how to work hard and how to how to get over and not get over in life, but how to succeed in life. And all of his brothers and sisters are successful. It's funny because he's the only one of them who's gone off to college. But if you talk to his brothers and sisters, they will tell you that he is not the most exceptional one of the of the ten. You know, there are other brothers and sisters who, some of whom have passed away, who they held in very very high regard. Whether or not they were a nurse, or one brother who who was hard of hearing and spent his whole life taking care of his mother. Once he got it, once he became an adult, so the family dynamic that John Lewis came from is 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 a lot of who he is now or a lot of who he was in life because his family is, I mean, his, you know, everyone says their family is great, but this family was very warm. They were very receptive. I was with the family again yesterday and I saw a brother, and this is just one of those things about just the strong black family and just how black families embrace people. But I was with the family yesterday and a brother that I had not met, his name is Freddie. And we we're all social distancing and all that kind of stuff. And Freddie looks at me and he starts yelling and say, hey, you look just like Eddie. You look just like Edward. Edward is the brother who passed away. And, you know, he passed away a while back. He's like, you look just like Eddie. And I'm like, hey, you know, how you doing? And I'd never seen his brother before. So he taps his brother Samuel, whom I have met. He says, Sammy, who, who does he look like? Sam says, oh, he looks just like Edward. So it's just like that whole thing. And all the brothers and sisters start laughing and saying it looks like Edward. And I'm honored because, you know, they see that in me. But it's just like this is just a, re- a guy who comes from a regular family. And I think a lot of times we put people on pedestals and we don't understand who they are as people. But I think when you pull back the layers of who John Lewis is, you see that he's just a regular country boy from Troy, Alabama. And by being with his family, you can see that, that, you know, the roots of who he is is based on what he learned on that farm, raising chickens. And speaking of those chickens, and I hope I'm not monopolizing the conversation. When I was there, they gave me, I got two dozen eggs from those chickens. And I can tell you that I've had a lot of really good breakfasts from those fresh uh, 
eggs from the from, chickens, from the, from the eggs, from the Lewis farm. And exactly. you, one of the things that I took away is, you know, you mentioned that their father had the foresight to buy this land, spend his life savings at the time to leave a legacy that now his children and his children's children are now reaping the benefits of. And I feel like that's something that we see reflected in John Lewis's career because he's left a legacy, um, not necessarily for his biological children, but for the world and in, in to to do the things he did, to be beaten more than once, to be arrested more than once. You know, he sacrificed his his self in a in a real, you know, in a literal way so that generations after him could have, you know, better freedoms and better rights. And I think that's reflected in his upbringing. It's also, um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, he was a preacher from an early age, even as a preteen. And it, I feel like his 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 Christianity, his religion, also very much shaped the person he was. Yeah, and and, and you got to consider. I mean, you made you brought up a good point. This man was beaten savagely many times. This guy was this man was put in jail more than forty times, even put in jail as a legislator. And you know, one of the stories that we have in our package is about his his ability to forgive people. And I think that's another way. Another reason when you ask the question about how is he so loved in death and how is he so loved in life is that he had this this capacity to forgive people. He had this capacity to see human beings as human beings. He didn't, you know, I'm not going to say he didn't see color because, you know, that's one of those tropes that people say. But he saw people for who they were and he wanted people to be treated like he wanted to be treated or how they should be treated. So when a a man beats him in the 1960s, he's able to forgive that man 50 years later. He's able to not harbor hate in his in his heart for those troopers in Selma, Alabama, who beat him so savagely to the point that he almost died. So the religious aspect of his life, you know, coming up in the church, you know, going to church every Sunday, preaching to those chickens, you know, all that plays a part in who he became. And I mean, you know, he's a guy, you know, did he get angry? I'm sure he did. Um, you know, we know he did. He got angry in 1960, August 28, 1963, when A. Philip Randolph and Martin Luther King, his great mentors, made him change his speech. He got angry. He was angry. He was upset. He was upset because he felt that as a 23-year-old black man in America, his voice was not being heard and that if he changed his speech, his voice would be diluted. He changed the speech and he made the speech good, but he was angry about that. But he didn't harbor that ha- anger. And instead of manifesting that anger into something bad, he changed his speech and made it great because he knew that what he was doing and that wh- what he was representing at that point was greater than what his anger was representing. And he made it for the best. So he made one of the most amazing speeches ever. overshadowed only by the March on Washington. I mean, overshadowed only by I Have a Dream. So speaking of that, and we all know he's had a long career in civil rights history in the movement. You had a way of, of describing his three roles. You know, most people were either one of the three, but John Lewis was all three. Can you 
explain that because I think I thought that was so great how you put it in your article about him. Yeah, well, when you talk about the 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 concept of what I was talking about springs from Martin Luther King Jr. When you talk about Martin Luther King Jr. and we talk about the people who he was around, they usually come in three categories. One are his contemporaries, which are members of the big six that you can consider. So these are people like A. Philip Randolph and, and Roy Wilkins and, um, and, and, and the heads of CORE, uh, James Foreman, people like that who are, heads, who are heads of organizations similar to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. You had his lieutenants, people like Andy Young and Hosea Williams, who worked with him closely, John, Joe Lowry, who worked with them closely at the SCLC, who was with them every day. And we generally call these people his lieutenants. We, we always say Andy Young, a lieutenant of Martin Luther King Jr. And then you have foot soldiers. And these are the guys, you know, just like in an army, you had these guys who were on the front lines, not necessarily always getting beaten, but they were on the front lines, whether or not they were organizing the march, marches like, you know, the great, you know, uh, James Orange. When I was talking to John, I mean, I was talking to Andrew Young about how some of these protests recently have gotten out of hand. And he, the first thing he said was that James Orange, and I hope the listeners um, understand who James Orange was, how towering of a man he was. But he said, you know, when we had marches, we had James, we had people like James Orange, who was a marshal in the march. So he kept things in order. He, he, you know, he walked behind everybody. He made sure that the lines were straight. He made sure that people were doing what they needed to do. They were where, where they needed to be. These were the kind of the, these were the foot soldiers of the, of the of the movement. And John Lewis occupied all three of these positions. He was a member of the Big Six as the head of the Southern Christian, I mean, as the head of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He was a member of SCLC's um, executive board and board of trustees. So he was a he was a lieutenant. So that's the second pillar. And he was a foot soldier because he always wanted to be on the front lines. He was a freedom writer. He was chosen by Dr. King. To, to, to lead that march, that second march on March 7th, 1965, across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where he almost died. So he was there. He was always there. He was never afraid. Um, he was arrested 40 time, 45 times. So he represented all three of those aspects of the civil rights movement. So when you do that, and again, all of these positions are respected, but if you can navigate yourself into all three of these areas, that, that elevates you in the minds of everybody as somebody who can talk and navigate and deal with everybody. And to a certain point, you know, it kind of got him in trouble because as a foot soldier and as a member of SNCC, the people in SNCC were upset or the people in SNCC were kind of suspicious of him because they were like, you know, well, you're kind of too cozy with Martin Luther King Jr. You're kind of too cozy with the Kennedys and, and, and the Johnsons in the White House. And, you know, as you as you know, he was ousted out of out of SNCC and he left that he was he was voted out and he left that kind of bitterly and kind of transitioned into a different part of his life. But he was able to kind of navigate all of these things and, you know, and, and do good work in all three aspects. of it. So I want to make sure I understand that. But before we do, I want us, you know, we've talked a lot about his powerful words. Let's take a pause and listen to an excerpt of John Lewis's speech from 1963's March on Washington. Where is our party? Where is the political party that will make it unnecessary to march on Washington? Where is the political party that will make it unnecessary to march in the streets of Birmingham? 
where is the political party that will protect the citizen of Albany, Georgia? Do you know that in Albany, Georgia, nine of our leaders have been indicted, not by the Dixocrats, but by the federal government for peaceful protests? But what did the federal government do when Albany Deputy Sheriff beat Attorney C.B. King and left him half dead? What did the federal government do when local police official kicked and assaulted the pregnant wife of Slater King and she lost her baby? Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. Powerful, powerful words. And before we pause to listen to that excerpt of the, his speech, you talked about John Lewis being pushed out from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And I find that interesting. That's part of his history that I'm, you know, as I'm as I was researching and learning about him, that was also part of the rift between kind of leaders of the civil rights movement over whether they should continue being nonviolent or start, you know, standing up a little bit. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, there, you know, John Lewis represented the kind of the younger, younger factor faction of the civil rights movement leader hierarchy. And a lot of the old, a lot of the younger people, not John Lewis, but a lot of the younger people felt that nonviolence may not be the right way to go, may not be the path in which they needed to take. The Black Panthers were, not the Black Panthers, but, you know, people like Malcolm X, people like Stokely Carmichael. These people were, were talking a different language than Martin Luther King and the SELC were talking. And they wanted to, to have a different route. And the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which, you know, you, you think about the name, the leadership of that organization started questioning what they were doing in the movement, what their role was in the movement, and questioning King. You know, they used to derisively call Martin Luther King the Lord because they felt that he thought that he was a godlike figure, and they kind of mocked him because of that. They mocked him as the, the Lord. So John Lewis still adhered to nonviolence. He still worshipped Martin Luther King Jr. in the SCLC. So as he continued to advocate for nonviolence, members of the SCLC was like, hey, you know, we need to think of something else. We need to do something else. And there was this big famous, you know, election. And John Lewis, who was a founder of SCLC, who was, you know, the longstanding president, who was a president or chairman when he spoke at the March on Washington, was voted out. He was kick literally kicked out of the organization. I was going to say, I think it's just important, like, today, as we're watching the protests in cities like Atlanta, you know, and people you know, say, well, they should be peaceful, which John Lewis even spoke out and asked for the protest to remain peaceful. But, you know, the there are elements that think that, you know, messing some stuff up, pulling down some statues, burning some buildings, that they think that has a role in that staying peaceful is not always the best way to send a message. And I just want to bring that home that that's not a new debate. You know, we're talking about John Lewis facing those same detractor, detractors in that same kind of conversation about what's the best way to get our message across and get results even back in the 1960s. You know, I think some people are like, where did these people come from that that don't want to be peaceful and they're they're looking to to, you know, um, a little bit of 
destruction in their path. But that's always even if I mean, that's been part of American history since its beginning. But it's also been parts of other movements since then. It's just not part of it's just not the current movement where that's been discussed. Mm-hmm. And you got to understand that people like C.T. Vivian and John Lewis, when they were talking about nonviolence and when they reflect on nonviolence, nonviolence worked and nonviolence was a was an important tactic to show the violence. Nonviolence was what nonviolence actually showed violence because it showed violence against innocent, peaceful black people. When C.T. Vivian was punched down the stairs of the Dallas County courthouse in Selma, Alabama in 1965, February of 1965, that was televised all over the country. And C.T. Vivian didn't fight back. He stood up with a bloody nose and a bloody face and continued to, to, to tell Sheriff Clark that he was wrong. When John Lewis and Hosea Williams were beaten at the M.M. Pettus Bridge, they didn't fight back, but the, the whole world witnessed the violence of that. The whole world witnessed the violence of the dogs in Birmingham. So when these people argue that nonviolence is important and nonviolence works, it did. It does work. It's, it's going to cause you a lot of pain. It's going to cause you a lot of suffering. Some people died because of it, but it worked. And I think that it's, it's important to understand that it worked. And it's important to understand that when you have a part of something that worked, it's kind of difficult to see it go down a different path. That was That's why it was difficult for John Lewis and when he was kicked out of SCLC or SNCC then. And I think that's why it was difficult for him now. And you've written about this extensively to watch cities burn and to watch cities, to watch his hometown of Atlanta go up in smoke after after what was considered a peaceful protest after the George Floyd protest. And I think that's painful for him. It's painful for people like C.T. Vivian and Andy Young to kind of see that knowing where they came from. Let's switch gears a little bit. We've talked a lot about the civil rights movement, the protests, the nonviolence. But again, we've noted that John Lewis did then embark on a career in politics. Uh, he ran for the U.S. House and lost. Then he ran for Atlanta City Council and won. Let's talk about that 1986 run for Congress. So we talk about John Lewis being this nice, gentle giant, which he was. But he also, in political arena, was a beast and took out his good friend, Julian Bond. And, and you know, a lot of people are surprised by that because, you know, he almost comes across as docile. But when it comes to winning that race, he went for the jugular. So remind people what happened and, and why do you think he decided to go there? Well, um, as you mentioned, in 1986, he ran for the U.S. House of Representatives and he ran against Julian Bond. And Julian Bond, for the for those of you who do not know, came from a very well-connected family here in Atlanta. He's an Atlanta, you know, institution. The Bond family is an Atlanta institution. Julian Bond's son is now on the Atlanta City Council. Um, His father was a great educator. So Julian Bond, by all intents and purposes, was supposed to be the fifth district's representative in the House, U.S. House of Representatives. There was even talk about he can one day become the president of the United States. So he gets into this um, race with John Lewis, who, you know, John Lewis was known in 1986, but, you know, Julian Bond was Julian Bond. They looked different. They talked different. 
Uh, they came from different backgrounds, and Julian Bond was supposed to be the guy to do this, to to represent this seat. And it was a tough campaign. They, you know, they said that you know John Lewis was appealing to white voters. Julian Bond, who was part of that early Atlanta machine, was appealing to black voters. But Julian Bond had some problems. He had problems with his family in terms of um, his wife accusing him of using drugs. And that's something that people knew that was well known. Uh, whether or not he was actually using drugs or not, we don't know, but his wife said he was. So John Lewis in a debate or John Lewis, you know, in a, in a conversation that the two were having, in a debate, he said, I'm willing to take a drug test. Are you willing to take a drug test? And Julian Bond wouldn't take a drug test. And, they, you know, again, these are good friends in the 1960s and 1970s. They canvassed, you know, Mississippi and Alabama, getting thousands upon thousands of people to vote or to register to vote. And they were good friends because they're both in the civil rights movement. They're both in Atlanta. They're both part of the Atlanta elite. So this kind of cut the knees out from under Bond. He never recovered. And John Lewis went on to represent Georgia in the U.S. House of Representatives. And what's very interesting is like the next day or so, they're both on a national television show. Um, I can't recall if it was Good Morning America or the Today Show. And they're both there sitting side by side talking about it. And Julian Bond is pissed. He's upset. He's saying that, you know, John Lewis used, you know, dirty tactics against him in this race. And John Lewis is kind of funny, but John Lewis doesn't say anything. He just sits there and listens. And he listens to Julian Bond basically lambast him as a dirty campaigner. He never says a word. Um, but, you know, I think they became friends after. I think they kind of reconciled years later. But that was an example of John Lewis being, you know, he's a nice, docile person. But he was also at the beginning stages of being a politician. And as you know, covering politicians and politics, it's not always a pretty game. And he kind of showed that early on. Yeah, and there's so much, we're getting, we're running out of time. And it's funny because we could talk so much longer. We haven't talked about John Lewis and his position fighting for, you know, gay rights. We haven't talked about John Lewis fighting for gun control. We haven't talked about John Lewis, you know, um, being a, an anti-war activist. And we haven't even touched on John Lewis and his very uh, apparent dislike um, of President Donald Trump, and that is mutual. So what I'm going to tell you listeners to do, if you go on AJC.com, we have a whole John Lewis page of full coverage. There are so many articles we've written, not just articles over the years, but new things we've written just in light of his death. And it's so comprehensive. We had a 12-page special section uh, if you didn't get it in the paper, you might want to call and see if you can get a copy because there's just too much for us to cover in even just a single podcast. But I do want to leave it on this note for you, Ernie. Today, people call John Lewis the conscience of the Congress. You know, what did he do to earn this? And what do you think is going to be, you know, if we could, you know, tap in and, and, and get a final charge from John Lewis, what do you think he would want to see from the colleagues that are, are now going to carry the mantle with him gone? Well, I mean, I think the conscience of the, of the, of the Congress was, a, was an apt title for him. I mean, he did so much, not necessarily legis legislatively, but he did so much with his presence of being there and being 
always trying to be on the right side of history. And I think if, if his colleagues can carry one thing, I think that's it, being on the right side of history, whether that's in civil rights or, or gay rights or um, the abortion issue, whatever issue it is, be on the right side of history. Because I think John Lewis has always tried to be on that right side of history. And I think, you know, when you talk about his, you know, his, his controversial relationship with Donald Trump, I mean, you know, obviously he had some issues with Donald Trump. And I think that, you know, if if we can get past that, if he can get, you know, Congress and he can get voters and voting was so important to him. If we can get people to if if people would go to the polls, whether or not they vote for Donald Trump or Joe Biden, if people would go to the polls and and exercise their rights as Americans to vote. I think that would be very, very important. And I think it's very important for us to get out there and vote and for people to get out there and vote. And I think if you do that, that's the best way that all of us can honor John Lewis's memory to get out there and vote. Well, thank you so much again. Uh, that's Ernie Suggs, the race and culture reporter at the Atlanta Journal Constitution. I'm your guest host, Tia Mitchell, the AJC's Washington correspondent. We thank you so much to tuning in to the Politically Georgia podcast as we honor the life and legacy of U.S. Representative John Lewis. And thank you so much. Thank you. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.